everyone, and welcome to The Heart of Memphis, a weekly podcast exploring the contours of the arts, commerce, culture, and faith. Each episode, we will take you to the heart of the city. The Heart of Memphis is brought to you by a partnership between Lux Creative and Lindenwood Christian Church. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Heart of Memphis. Thank you so much for downloading our podcast, and we hope that you will share the good word about the stories that we are able to tell that take you to the heart of the city. If you haven't yet, subscribe, give us a rating, give us a review, and feel free to share this podcast if you hear some good stories with people that you think would appreciate going to the heart of the city. On this episode, we are excited to welcome Laren McCormack to our show. Laren, thank you so much for being on the, The Heart of Memphis with us. Thanks for having me. We are excited to have you on to, to learn a little more about you and have you tell uh, your story with all of our listeners. So one of the many things that uh, we may have in common, Laren, you are a Texan. Amen? I am. So tell us a little bit about where you grew up, what life was like in, in, in Houston, Texas, and uh, give us a better understanding of where you came from. Uh, as you said, I grew up in Houston, Texas, kind of on the south side of town. Uh, the house that we lived in when I was born was exactly halfway between downtown Houston and downtown Galveston, but still in Houston city limits. And so it is a big city for sure when people doubt that. Um, quickly after being born, we moved more into the city, and I grew up in an area um, known as South Houston, which is a primarily Hispanic area. Um, in fact, the high school that I went to, I was one of five non-Hispanic and non-black students in the high school. So that was fun. And I had a graduating class of 1,500. So it was not a little, you know, oh, the 10 people that she graduated with, she was one of them. But um, so that was that was a unique experience, very multicultural, very multi-ethnic uh, grew up loving places and things that are different than me, looked different than me, acted differently, had different language than I did. Um, Houston is not lacking for diversity and not lacking for things to do. So on the weekends, I'd hop on a bus and go to the art museums and just enjoyed enjoyed culture. In Memphis, when we talk about diversity, historically that is white culture, African-American culture, white neighbors, African-American neighbors. Houston has to be one of the most diverse cities in, in the world. I, you know, I lived there 25 years ago just for a, a summer, and I knew I could just get a taste of the diversity. What was it like growing up in a, in a city with, with that much diversity? I know we have diversity in, in Memphis and in the South, but it's in, in a sense it's very binary. That's not the case in no. Memphis, is it? No. I mean, in Houston. Yeah. Uh, yeah, when people talk to me about diversity, I had to learn when I moved to the true South that they meant black and white. Um, Can we just get something on the record? Texas is not the South. Texas is not the Thank South. Thank you. Okay. Texas, Texas is, is the, Texas. It's its own thing. Yes. It's its own thing. It's not the South. Um, so you moved to the true South. So I moved to the true South, starting in Nashville um, and now in Memphis, but I had to learn that when other people talked about diversity, they meant black and white. And when they'd ask me, do you have experience with diversity, they meant black and white. Um, because that was not the diversity that I had growing up. We had lots lots of people from Central Asia, lots of people, obviously, from the Latinx community, uh, lots of people. We, ha- we did have a lot of black people in Houston as well. There's a lot of people that come over every time a hurricane hits New Orleans and migrate to Houston. So we have a lot of that, like, French Creole background there as well. 
a, a lot of my classmates from Jamaica, and oh, the, wow. like that area. So um, when the black people I saw were more like Caribbean black, necessar- not necessarily straight from Africa black. Um, so that was unique. A lot of a lot of Middle Eastern influence in Houston. So it was it was weird to move to where diversity was binary, not the full spectrum. That is one of the things that is uh, we we throw around these buzz terms, like you said, and and invaluable terms of of, of diversity and uh, moving beyond just like you know one perspective that you grew up with. Um, Houston really blows the lid off of all of our small categories about that. It sounds like. In many ways. In many ways. So, not that Houston is absent of problems. I will. By no means. Yes, I By would no put means. violence and traffic would be <laughs> number yes. one and number two there. But one of the things I, I, I asked if you'd be willing to talk about is the uniqueness of your heritage, of 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 where you grew up, and as opposed to butchering human language, I want to give you. I would like you to tell that story and use the language that that you value. Um, diversity is in your background as well. Yes. So, um, my, so three of my grandparents are 100% Cherokee. Uh, they were born on reservations and moved off in their teenage years, um, keeping in mind that my one set of grandparents were born in like 1902 and 1903. So we're talking over 100 years ago <clears throat> what the reservations looked like. Um, one grandparent moved because he found better opportunity. And he saw that the people off the reservation lived better. So he just moved to better his life um, and still held a lot of respect for the culture, a lot of respect for the land. So from my mother's side of the family, I had that respect, the respect of he was a farmer. So how much nature pulls into us. Um, My father's parents suffered a different fate on the reservation and ran away to escape, ran away because they were ashamed of who they were. They were ashamed of the treatment they had. So um, we grew up with them in our lives more because we, they lived in Houston. And so from, and, and grew up with the shame of what it meant to be Native. Mm-hmm. And they taught us from a very young age to hide things that we did at home, uh, rituals that they hadn't learned how to take out <laughs> of our system, uh, some language, different things that we called dishes that we ate, different things that we called... Um, times of day and stuff like that. We were told you can say this in the house, but you have to learn how to talk about it outside the house. Uh, anytime we had friends come over, we had to hide pieces. We'd go through the bookshelves and, oh, this can't be out, this can't be out, this can't be out. And we had hiding places for different family heirlooms and relics and things like that. Um, so the the phrase that we grew up with and um, I've heard other cultures use as well is that I grew up to pass. And what I mean by that is pass is white. And so from a very young age, it was um, I was born fairly pale. And so I was kept inside so that I would not tan. I wouldn't develop any darker darker skin. Um, I, I have curly hair because my mom's mom is Scottish. And so um, that's not a typical Native trait. So that curly hair was emphasized, and they would take me to this. I'd go with my grandmother every Friday to the salon to have them make sure that it laid in Shirley Temple ringlets um, so that I would look as white as possible and act as white as possible. And so from a young age, I was taught how to be white and how to survive as white. And that was 
sent as a survival mechanism as I look back on it. Um, at the time, I just thought it was to assimilate and fit in, but I think it, my grandparents saw it as a way to survive. They really thought that we'd be in danger if we if we didn't. Um, and so for, for years, we had this part that we hid of ourselves and were taught to be ashamed of for ourselves. And it wasn't until really I became an adult and moved out and started living on my own that I learned that's not something to be ashamed of, but it's also something that I feel disconnected from because I didn't really grow up learning the rituals and learning the traditions. I just have fragmented pieces. So you talked about we have to hide this book when people come over. You know, we talk one way at home, and we have to translate that, for lack of a better term, out in public. It's probably both, but I would love to get your perspective. Do you believe that that was external pressure from culture demanding that from you? Or do you believe that that was internal fear of, of a painful past, like you referenced on the reservation, that, oh, my gosh, we can't go through that again, and uh, this book or this tradition that got out would, would be an invitation for uh, uh, more oppression? Was it internal? Was it external? Was it both or all of the above? Um, it's hard to say because my grandparents never really talked about why. Okay. Um, in fact, it wasn't until we were older that they even would talk about their time on the reservation. That's pieces that we didn't we didn't know why we were doing it. I think a lot of it came from their fear, though, more so than how to fit in. Um, they both found Caucasian families that adopted them when they left and took them in and taught them how to assimilate. So I think there was some of that external pressure from their quote-unquote adopted families, not legally, obviously, but um, quote-unquote adopted families that taught them how to survive and made them feel a little bit of pressure to change who they were so that they could fit in. But I do think a lot of it was was internal. It was, let's hide, let's, let's not admit this, um, because they didn't want us to suffer the way that they had. So how old were you when you began to learn more about your heritage and, and, and where your family came from in a way that was, you had permission to learn about it? Um, from my from my dad's side of the family, we didn't talk about it with my grandparents probably until, probably until I was in high school. Um, my grandmother passed my freshman year of high school, and it was really after that that my grandfather kind of opened up and started telling us a little bit about where he came from and where they came from and how they met and stuff like that. My mom's side of the family, we always knew. Um, There was a sense of, ironically, pride in being Native on that side, but this sense of we're Native but we don't claim it because the claiming it is for the people who are still suffering and we're not suffering. Um, So I I knew most of my traditions from my mother's side of the family, but I would say it was high school when I really discovered how deep those were and how much of my childhood with the hide this, hide this, um, what that really meant. So we have two things coming, two streams coming together here. One is is your native heritage that you had hidden or um, was, was a point of tension that you've lately, later in, in the teenage years learned more about. And then I know that faith was very important to you growing up in Houston. Tell me about the intersection of those two things, because it, it's got you where you are today. It has. It has. Uh, it's weird to look back on the intersection, because growing up, especially as a kid, you don't really realize 
things are weird until you experience others. So for me, it wasn't a, oh, I have to take these two distinct things and mesh them. That was never, I don't think, a conscious thing that I had to do as a child. As a child, it was just, this is who I am. Uh, but as an, as an adult, I realize how vastly different those are, especially when I look more into like Native spirituality and Native religions and Native traditions and just the difference that is from Christianity in the in many ways. Um, but growing up, my my grandparents in their in their new adopted families were raised in a Christian family from that point on. So they both went to church. My grandfather was raised in a Baptist church and my grandmother was raised in the Church of Christ. So when they got back together, the Church of Christ won out um, because she's always right. <laughs> and um, so my my father was raised in the Church of Christ just for that for that simple reason. They had assimilated to that point, had taken that on. Um, they never really talked much about why or how, but that was just a part of who they were. Um, my mom was a little more open, excuse me, about her faith. She she doesn't really know like when the religion started, but I'm assuming again from my grandmother who was not native when she met my grandfather, um, said, Hey, we're going to church. And they lived in a small town outside of Quincy, Illinois. And the closest church was a church of Christ and they could get to it with their horse and buggy, even in the winter. Um, and so they went to the church of Christ because every other church they couldn't get to. The theology of convenience is very strong, <laughs> especially when yeah. you're talking horse and buggy. I grew up an hour North of Quincy. So, yeah. Um, so, so they both kind of grew up in the same faith tradition and raised us in that. And that was very important to them that we were at church. They were raised with that mentality. Um, so for me, faith was just, it was something we did. It, uh, you know, it was just something that was a part of life. We were at church every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night. Um, summer series, we were there five days a week. I went on my first mission trip, so to speak, when I was five. We put on a VBS in Springerville, Arizona, and I went and poured the sand <laughs> for the crafts. Um, so it was just a part of who they ingrained us to be. And it, to me, it was never weird that we would then go home and go out and work the garden and, you know, be thankful for the land because it was like, well, God made the land. So, you know, I'm still thanking God by thanking the land for the food that it's going to give me. Um, but as as I've grown, I've learned that there were pieces more that were more based on the native side and the respect for the land, the respect for places, the respect for having um, location be so important, having the seasons be important. Um, I think my love of rain comes more from that than my faith, than it does from my faith. Um, But somehow as a child, I just merged it all together. Well, in merging all that together, it puts you on a path to where you are today. And it was a nonlinear path. I think that's a, I think I have permission to say that. And so you are now a family life minister here at Lindenwood Christian Church. Uh, a couple a couple weeks after you hear this podcast will be Laren's ordination service in June. We're looking forward to that. But leaving Houston, heading to Nashville, it puts you on a path to um, embracing a call to ministry, embracing a call to preparation for ministry through education, a bachelor's degree, master's degree in 
just completed a doctoral degree. And so you got to really love Jesus to go to school three times <laughs> for that. I, I think we can all just kind of get on the record about that. Uh, wind us through your embracing of a call. It doesn't have to be in contrast to a tradition that perhaps didn't embrace that, but it did move you to where you are now to be in a spot where you could embrace that. How did that, uh, how'd you figure all that out? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> No. Um, so when I went to I went to Lipscomb in Nashville, and my primary goal with that was I wanted to get – I'd lived in Houston my whole life, and we'd traveled a lot, and I'd visited a lot of different places, but I'd only lived in Houston. And so I knew I wanted to get away. I knew I wanted to be kind of like on my own, get away, experience different than what I grew up with because I knew that was important. And Nashville was far enough away that anyone that wanted to come visit had to at least give me a day's notice that they were coming. Um, so that was that was the main goal. That is a Nashville. great goal. Um, Spoken I, like a 19-year-old. Yeah, yeah. I'd also grown up um, always going to public school. And so I was like, well, let me figure out what this like private school thing is all about and what like Christian education. I'd heard that a lot but didn't really have any firsthand experience of it. So I kind of wanted to figure out what that was like. Um My undergrad degrees were not in religion, but I was at a Christian university, so we had to take Bible every semester. Um, And I kind of went in probably very rebellious, as most 18, 19-year-olds are, in the, I'm not going on a mission trip, I'm not working at the church, I'm not teaching any Sunday school classes, I'm just going to attend, I'm going to check my box, and I'm going to get my degree, and then I'm going to go into the workforce. Um, and I went into computer programming and music performance. Those were my undergrad paths. Um, and very quickly, I had met a um, sweet mate of mine who said, hey, I don't have a car. Can you drive me to church? And it was her home church because she was from Nashville. Oh, I want to teach the two-year-old class. Will you teach it with me? Okay, I'll teach the two-year-old class with you. Hey, I want to go on a mission trip. Will you go to the missions fair with me? So I went to the missions fair with her. Oh, I want to go to a Spanish-speaking country. Um, you grew up in a Spanish-speaking area. Will you go with me? So it, it kind of snowballed, and I ended up teaching at the church that I attended some of the children's classes all the years that I was there and um, went on a mission trip to Peru two years and then led that trip the last two years that I went there and fell back in love with serving and kind of was like, okay, I can do a little bit more in the church than I thought that maybe I was going to um, but still at that time very much had a, okay, I'm just going to go and maybe teach a kid's class and that'll be it. Um, and then after my fifth year, I went on a missions internship to Burkina Faso, um, which is sub-Sahara, West Africa. And li- we, I lived with some missionaries there for almost a semester. And it was like deep immersion. We spent nights out in the villages with the villagers. We spent days with the missionaries, we started a church, we wrote a songbook, we translated parts of the Bible into Dagara, which is their tribal language, um, had language classes every day, like full immersion into this work. And it was at the end of that that um, they were praying over us at the end when it became very clear that, like, this is what I need to be doing. Um, their words as they were praying were just a affirmation of, something I'd already been feeling but not willing to say yes to. So that's what led to the starting a master's degree and then eventually a doctorate from that and going into ministry. But 
Um, when I went in, I thought it was going to be missions. I thought that's what I was going to do was foreign missions. Prepared my whole master's degree to do that. At the end of the master's degree, needed some sort of residency or practicum to fulfill those hours just to graduate. And intended to go back to Houston to work with a former missionary to do that, to go down to Brazil. And God was like, nope, I have different plans. And I moved my stuff down on a Monday. By that Friday, the congregation that I was supposed to work for had completely changed its leadership, and the pastor I was going to work for no longer worked for them. My position was no longer on the table, and it was a, well, good luck. And I was like, well, I just moved all my stuff, and I just bought a house, and um, so I talked with a lot of mentors at the time. They're like, move down, see, give it a week, see what God has planned, and if it's nothing, then move back. You know, you have a place here. So I moved down, spent a week frantically trying to search for something, and on the last day before I was ready to move back to Nashville, um, got an offer to be a campus minister at a K-3 through 12th grade private Christian school in Houston. And I tell people all the time, I'm like, if God had told me I was moving to Houston to work with teenagers, I would have said, no, thank you. I'm perfectly fine fixing computers. But he had to convince me I was going to go to Brazil and then say, oh, no, no, we're really working with teenagers. But uh, that changed my ministry focus and really made me realize that my upbringing and the things that I have questioned relate to teenagers today as well. And changed from, no, I don't ever want to relive those years. I don't ever want to, I I was the out, like the weird one. (laughs) I don't want to relive that to know my weirdness is what, what is needed. Um, and helped me begin that journey. Well, let's pivot to talk about an area that I know you're passionate about with students, with children. And I'm not sure if anybody, everybody's aware of this, but we've had a global pandemic for two years. And the idea that everything will just adjust back to what it was in January of 2020, we know is just not accurate. What is, has been the impact on the, the students that you, you know, thinking about the students you minister to, as well as just your knowledge base in family life ministry of teenagers, of, of young children, what has the pandemic done to them? Let's start with that question, and we're going to come up with a follow-up. So we need you to answer all of this for, for all, all for all children. You know, when you look at education, you look at faith, you look at family life, you look at the reduction to extracurricular activities, you look at the addiction to the screen. All of that is going to come at a, at a cost. Mm-hmm. All of it's going to change things. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Oh my, uh, it's it's changed a lot. We know as adults that it's changed our daily routines. It's changed um, what we find important. And for a long time, it, it changed our relationships. It changed not just the way we interact with people, but who we interact with. And it's a lot harder to convey emotions across a text message than it is a face-to-face conversation. So when I'm no longer seeing people face-to-face, I'm just reading a text. I'm reading that in whatever state I'm in. Um, throw puberty into that and throw all of the chaos that God is ordering through puberty into that mix. And that's, that's what teenagers are going through. They're trying to figure out how do I relate to my friend, but all they have is a screen. And as much as social media maybe had the potential to prepare us for that and had the potential to say, 
um, you know, oh, you can live honestly and authentically and communicate through this screen. That's not what social media ended up doing. And so then the fake world of social media became their real world because that's the only way they had to communicate with each other. And all of a sudden, um, all those fears and doubts of I'm less than are now amplified because I can when I can see my friend and they're like fabulous Instagram post, but then I also see them at school and I know, okay, the Instagram post is just one part of life. Um, school is where I connect to them. Well, now I don't have that connection. All I see is the Instagram. So I think it heightened in a lot of ways the insecurity, especially for our teenagers, that they were already feeling um, a lot of that, a lot of that distance that they were already feeling just became more because you didn't have the one part of connection um, from from an education standpoint. Um, I'm no longer in the education world formally, but still have a lot of like feelers with it. Um, I've seen a lot of students unlearn how to study, unlearn how to do things. When you're told, you know, we went from before the pandemic where no technology in the classroom, put your phone away, all of a sudden during the pandemic, it's all about the technology. And so now we're trying to find that balance. And I don't think it's just the students that are doing that. The teachers are as well. They're trying to find that balance of how much technology can I have and how much is too much. Um, And it kind of amplified that as well. For faith, um, that's it, it breaks my heart every day to think about the people that I don't think I'll ever see again. Um, the students that I was just beginning to form relationships with and beginning to learn who they are um, and now haven't seen in two years. Some of that a... A natural falling away. Some of you know, would it have happened without the pandemic? Maybe people come and go, um, but the pandemic definitely heightened that and definitely accelerated that for many people. Um, for our little kids, I think they've lost the ability to learn how to love each other. When you're little, that's where you learn how to interact with people. You learn what social boundaries are. You learn who to trust and who not to trust. Um, you learn all of those things, and I, I go through, I go through our childcare even, and I watch our four and five year olds. And pre pandemic, they'd come up and tackle me on the gym floor, and I'd have to like call teachers over to pull them off so that I could breathe. And now they're afraid to come over and give me a high five. And it's different kids, but at the same age, at the same learning level, and it's not because they necessarily see me any less. It's just. Oh, I don't know if I can. I don't know if I can touch people now. Is it okay to give them a hug? Um, is it okay? The the first time I visited my nephews after the pandemic, my nephew came in for a hug and paused like six inches away from me and looked at his mom and dad. And he's like, "Is it okay if I hug Aunt?" And they're like, "Yeah, that's okay." And you know, I think about when I first got into ministry, there were still plenty of people that had vivid memories of the Great Depression. And the first building campaign I wanted to run at like 23 years old, there were these old, much older members that are like, well, we can do this, but we will not take out a dollar of, of debt. We will not have a loan. We have to pay it in cash. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, we don't we don't have to put down but like 5% and they're going to give us a million dollars. And there was still like, I remember this, this kind old man. He's like, well, what if the bank closes? Like, what are, like those things get ingrained at a young age. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering what... 
you don't have to have an answer because none of us have an answer. But there will be an equivalent of that yeah. going forward um, from people that were learned learned how to read on a phone, mm-hmm. that learned how to add on a screen. Yeah, what it does, I have no clue. But we'll find out in fifteen years. Yes, yes, you will still be around because you're so much, you're younger. <laughs> you know, I know, I, I know, I play a, the the role of a grumpy old man. I'm the oldest, forty six year old, but I have just really now learned so. When I hear Instagram filters, I think, oh, I can make my picture black and white. But now I know, like, the filter is, like, you can run an app that will just take all your acne away. You can run an app that will make you look 10 pounds lighter. You can run an app that will highlight your hair in a way that I thought you had to pay $50,000 to get, like, somebody to airbrush your picture all up. Like, our presentation of the world has to be morphed to a standard to just go online, to just see what your buddy's doing. And I think that the you know you've you've highlighted that in a way that I'm I'm just beginning to learn, and I can't decide whether whether it's awful or dangerous. Both. <laughs> yes. Both. Both. Yeah. Well, you've made your way here to Memphis. We're we're grateful that you're working here at our congregation, but we like to talk about the city at large. Like, and so in closing, this is where we always kind of wrap things up. You know, what do you love about Memphis? What keeps you in Memphis? What is it about the city and this culture? And, you know, you live just up the street here. You live right in the heart of Midtown, right in the heart of the city. What do you love about Memphis? When I, f- when I first moved to Memphis, um, a coworker of mine described it in a way that I'll never forget. And I still don't know if I completely like it, but I'll never forget it. Um, because he knew I lived in Nashville for 10 years through college and afterwards, and he was trying to describe the differences. And he says, you love Nashville like you love your girlfriend, and you love Memphis like you love your wife. Once you're here, it's a commitment. Um, and I wrestle with that a little bit <laughs> with a, a lot of implica- other implications. But I think the heart of what he was saying with the a lot of cities have that very transient, you can come or go, it's got the same thing as every other city. But there's just something about Memphis that when you're here – it's maybe it's the great water, maybe it's you know the lack of not knowing if you're going to have power every day or something like that. I don't know what it is, but there's there's something about Memphis that makes you want to invest in it, and I love that so many places in Memphis are community based. They're about giving back to their community. Um, we don't shy away from the fact that Memphis has a past. We don't shy away from the fact that. Memphis has a current, and Memphis will have a future, but there are so many places that I go that you can find the, you know, people paying it ahead, people, um, you know, asking if they can pay for someone else's meal as they go, places that intentionally will feed whoever walks through the door, no matter if they can pay or not. Um, I told someone one time growing up in Houston, you know, you always saw people holding signs on the side of the street and we always, we would be like 15 cars back and I'd be like digging through trying to find 50 cents to hand to them. If I'm 15 cars back in Memphis, they're going to get at least five handouts before I get to them because I don't think I've ever driven by a street corner and seen more than three cars go by that didn't hand a bottle of water or a couple bucks or a granola bar or something out the window to someone that's asking it's very much a, we, we recognize that we have a broken past and we recognize that that's only going to get better by working together with who's here right now. So that's one of the things that made me fall in love with Memphis was 
the way that it the way that it loves each other and the way that it says we are who we are, but we're all here together. Um, yeah, I think that's what keeps me here too. That's amazing. Thank you. We will conclude on that witness. Thank you so much. Well, Laren, thank you for taking the time to come on our latest episode here of The Heart of Memphis, a weekly podcast exploring the contours of the arts, commerce, culture, and faith. I'm pretty sure you've seen that in this episode we took you to the heart of the city.